Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music and sometimes beer, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and myself, radio host Emily Reese. Today, that sometimes beer is very applicable because we are going to talk about Oktoberfest. Not only beers, but then we're going to talk about some autumnal music that pairs really well with it. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution for as little as $1 a month on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash scoresandpours. There you'll find a full playlist and a wine list and a link to our merch page. And a beer list. In heaven there is no beer, that's why we drink it here. And when we're gone from here, our friends will be drinking all the beer. Beer. Just in case you wanted tonic at the end of that tune. I did, thank you. (laughs) Welcome to Scores and Pours, everybody, and this episode of Oktoberfest and Autumnal Music. Mm. Tis the season. Oktoberfest is one of my favorite beers. I love Oktoberfest. I've had some bad ones. I've had some amazing ones. And we're going to have a little spectrum of them all today. I cannot wait. Yes, and we have some artisanal German Oktoberfests, or, or Marzens, as they're sometimes called. And we also have some, we we bought the version of like the big box as well, mm-hmm. what is featured at the Oktoberfest Festival, just because they're delicious and well, really well made. Actually, according to the Runheitsgebot that I'll talk about later, um, it's a law that uh, it's a German purity law for brewing. Um, but but they are, you can tell that they're a little bit more like heavily manufactured. BTW and aside, Emily and I mm-hmm. are wearing Scores and Pores T-shirts right now. We are Scores and Pores T-shirts, fresh off the press. We just got them today. They're still warm, actually. <laughs> Oh, wait, we're just having a warm spell in Minneapolis. But they feel really good. Mm -hmm. They're really soft. The size is appropriate. I just, yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, so check out our Patreon page so you can see a link to that. And that link will take you to a spot where there will be pictures of Jill Mott in uh, on our merch page. So check out patreon.com slash scores and pours so you can find a link to our merch page. Word Pretty excited. And then I'm going to be talking about She's doing the Oktoberfest thing. There are all kinds of examples of composers who wrote seasonal music. We're going to hear one of them because it's a kind of a hefty work, uh, as it were. And so we'll listen to a symphony by a composer we've never talked about on Scores and Pours yet. I'm very excited about that. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know how we're going to kick it off? Yeah, with beer, right? Otsapt East. Okay. Which means it's tapped. <laughs> and that is how every Oktoberfest starts with the mayor or someone important in Bavaria, in the town of München, known as in, as Munich, Munich in English, yeah. mm-hmm. um, tapping the first keg. And they actually have bets. People take bets of how many hammers it's going to take to tap the first keg. <laughs> and it's been, I think, as little as t- two and as many as like 40 plus or something like that, which is kind of hilarious. But yes, let's start drinking. Yes. Before I talk about the festival and how Oktoberfest has to do with the festival, that's all started in the 1800s. The theory of Oktoberfest or why the beer is even, before it was called Oktoberfest, it was called Marzen because it was this type of beer or reminiscent thereof, because obviously this doesn't taste like beer in the 16 or 1500s, because a lot has changed, uh, especially in hygiene and um, in technology. But 
Mars is the German word for March, and beers were brewed in March and then stored over the summer, and I'll talk about that in a second. I'm holding a cold bottle of beer, so I'm going to put it in Emily and my glass. The first beer we're going to taste is uh, from a producer called Einger, and they are uh, in Bavaria. They are in the town of I, or some people say E, but I think it's I, A-Y, and all Oktoberfests are like amber in color of varying degrees. They should have a low to medium hop presence. You shouldn't smell any like noble hop characters, meaning IPA, pale ale like hops, right? They should just be there to kind of balance the maltiness. The malts are going to be a little bit more, like a little bit maltier because it is an amber beer, but it should be dry. It traditionally is and is still made was and is, I should say, a lager beer, so made with lager yeast and has been cellared at lower temperatures, and with a medium effervescence and a, and a medium alcohol level, like 5 to 6%. Okay. Anything outside that is now you're starting to be like Oktoberfest style and you're having your take on it. It's a scores and pours. Scores and pours. And I chose this because this is the quintessential, this is benchmark. Okay. Oktoberfest. Benchmark. It's Perfect. delicious. Yeah. It tastes like Triscuits and Wheaties that is liquid. Mm-hmm. Like, and just, just enough hops, just mm-hmm. to balance it out. Einger is about 5.8% alcohol, so perfect. You know, you drink six of them, or maybe if you're me, drink two or three, and it's great. So I wanted to, I'll, I'll point out why Oktoberfest is even a thing. The beers, anyway. In 1553, there was in Bavaria a brewing decree that said beer can only be made between the months of September and April. So anybody that knows, you know, anybody that cycles through things in your fridge or, you know, you open the box of cereal that's going to expire first or whatever, if you're brewing in September, those beers are going to be consumed first. October, they're going to be consumed a little later, etc. And the beers that were brewed towards the latter part of that cycle, we'll say March and April, they're known as Mar- March or Marzen, and they were a little bit more hoppy and a little higher alcohol than the other beers. And they would be cellared in a cool space underground, in caves, for the entirety of the summer. What happens? Fall comes around, and all the beers that you haven't like consumed, you need to drink those to make room for making more beer. And that's how Marzen beers, they were called Marzen long before they were called Oktoberfest. Mm-hmm. They were called Oktoberfest because they used the excuse that I'm going to talk about later, the, uh, the festival, mm-hmm. as an excuse to, wow, there are a lot of citizens here. Let's just empty out the caves and empty out the cellars <laughs> of this delicious beer that was brewed in March. We'll call it Oktoberfest. And, you know, then we make space for the new beers to be brewed in September. So it was really just a way to get rid of yeah. beer. To make so for why were those beers, you mentioned that they were a little hoppier with a little bit higher alcohol content. Why? Both alcohol and hops are known to preserve. They help preserve. And back during that time, they didn't know about bacteria or yeast. They just knew that things spoiled and that if things had a little bit more hop additions and if they were able to achieve a little higher alcohol content by using more malt to give more available sugar 
to the the brew, as it were, you would end up with a more stable product when you opened it up in October. Oh, okay. So Excellent. that's why they are the way they are. But we'll I'll talk more about that when we talk about the fest. Let's get into Sounds some good. autumnal music. So we're going to listen to a symphony by a Swiss-born, really Swiss-German composer named Joachim Raff. And Raff lived in the 1800s, and eventually, by the time uh, he died, was hugely popular, but that fame didn't last. For some reason, he kind of fell into obscurity in the 1900s, which is unfortunate because he wrote a lot of music and, and a lot of very beautiful music. He wrote... Uh, completed 10 full symphonies. He wrote 11, technically, but just didn't finish the 11th. And the last four of them, so 8, 9, 10, 11, build a seasons cycle. So spring, summer, fall is the 10th, and 11 would have been was winter. Um, number 10, called Two Autumn or Two Autumn Time. Wait, let me, let, me, let me practice. I'm trying to learn German, at least just for when I go to Oktoberfest. Zur Herbstzeit. To autumn time. autumn time. Yep. So uh, he, Raff, lived from 1822 to 1882, smack dab in uh, the middle of the 1800, really just that whole time period. Uh, just to give you a little context, Beethoven died in 1827. So Raff comes, you know, born five years before the death of, of Beethoven. Um. Symphony number 10, he wrote in 1879, and let's go ahead and hear a little bit of it. We'll come back to it, and it's a rather lengthy work, so we'll uh, have a lot of time to talk about the music and him, but let's just go ahead and get some music in our ears, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so this is a little bit of the first movement, which has a subtitle of Impressions and Feelings. I'm getting all feely already. in F minor. That's why it sounds sad. Is that a bassoon I hear? Yeah, there's lots of great bassoon in here, especially the second movement starts with bassoons out in a really cool spot. If we want to talk about the meter, we can. One, two, three, one, two. But it's not one and two and three and, right? It's... One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three, four, five, oh, six, wow. seven, eight, nine. One, two. So we're in nine, eight. Whoa. Okay. One, okay. two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah. Wow. So I a conductor when, would conduct in three. One, two, three, four, five, six, but seven. But I guess eight, I can hear that now when you say that. It's like sometimes when it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, there's he's like doing all these yeah. accents on the sick, on the, you yeah, know, where, and where stuff, if it yeah. was like one, two, three, one, it wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. Oh, yeah. We're going to point out the meter of all, th- all four movements, actually, because it's fun. 
Awesome. And this was his um, his like number two thirteen of his work, right? Was he like a really prolific? He wrote a lot writer? of music, and and initially he didn't uh, write really anything but solo piano music when he first started out as a composer. Also, interesting thing about Roth is that he is uh, largely self taught. He never really had formal training. He didn't wow go to conservatory. He just had certain mentors along the way that helped him out, and. Um, uh, we can talk more about that too, but um, this particular symphony uh, has this subtitle, and many of his works had subtitles, giving them what we would call a programmatic feel, right? So we're talking about autumn time, you know, and mm-hmm. then each movement then often has a descriptor, like this first movement, which had impressions and feelings. Well, so. I'm really excited for to, for you and I to talk about number movement number two, because that title is strange. Can we staghorn? Yeah. <sighs> Man. Yeah. This is one Man. of my favorites of the year, definitely, this staghorn from New Glarus, which is, and I never introduce the beers, but I'm going to introduce this one. I never introduce any of the alcohol, but New Glarus, we're lucky to have such a close border with Wisconsin only for this reason. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. New Glarus is a Wisconsin brewery. They don't sell their beers in Minnesota. So if you want New Glarus, which is pretty much all day, all the time, uh, you have to drive to Wisconsin for it, which is a, a worthwhile reason to go because they do such a great job in this Oktoberfest of theirs this year. It's the first time I've I've personally ever had their Oktoberfest, and it's so delicious, which I just am not surprised. They do it right. So tell us about it. So it's called Staghorn, and when you compare, just we're, now we've got a little glass of Einger, and we've got a little glass of the New Glarus. Mm-hmm. Look at the color. looks like the Einger seems a little bit less amber, like a little more dark golden. Yeah. They both have good head retention. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Einger surprisingly seems... It's not hazy, but it seems less clarified than perhaps the New Glarus. Mm-hmm. New Glarus is a little higher in alcohol. I want to say that it's like upwards of 6.25 as opposed to the other one that's 5.8. Uh, but give it a little try. Here they're using some awesome Euro and Midwestern malts with the New Glarus. Yeah, I mean, that's just... It's a little drier. But it's still so round and comfy. It's a li- Do you agree that it's just a... There's a touch more bite, like a little more yeah. hot presence. Yes. My personal opinion is that that is to balance that little bit more alcohol, a little bit more malt. Mm-hmm. So these guys, they are out of New Glarus, so I think southeastern, close to Monroe, that area, and they just do really... None of their beers are like not on point. They, yeah. You may not like them, or you may not like a certain style, but they're going to be really in my mind, really, really correct. Um, mm-hmm. like, well made, yeah. Yeah, this is... Granted, this isn't within the ABV bounds, but it's definitely there in terms of profile. Oktoberfest, why do we have Oktoberfest? Okay. Yes, why? It's a festival that celebrates a few different things. First and foremost, there was a proposal and later a marriage that happened between, he became, King Ludwig and Princess Therese of Saxe-Hiedelburghausen. And they got married... I. October, like mid-October sometime in the early 1800s. I want to say 1810, 1812. And at that time, they had like horse races and games and parades and costumes and all these things to like commemorate this wedding. But that's also, some people say that that wasn't actually to commemorate the wedding. It was more like to bring people together around, you know, this pride and this new family and whatever. And that has happened 
every year since then, with the exception of like World War II, World mm-hmm. War I, the coronavirus, it's been canceled this year. It became an annual event in like 1819. And Almost every year since then, with these nice. exceptions, yeah. there's been a festival. And with some some changes, you know, some from the original format, but a lot is still the same. The hillside that everybody was going to get to sit on and enjoy music and enjoy the horse races and blah, blah, is still there. It's still where the festival takes place. I don't think they have horse races anymore. But what's crazy, there's this like agricultural thing every, every, like an agricultural show every four years or every so many years. And that reminded me of the Minnesota State Fair, which mm-hmm. for us is like a kind of a big deal. A lot of people go every year. And just to compare, for those of you that have like big deal state fairs, it made me start to think of comparing Oktoberfest to the Minnesota State Fair to give people some compare and contrast. The Minnesota State Fair is 322 acres, the state fairgrounds. Okay. And every year, approximately... Just over 2 million people go. The Oktoberfest grounds are less than a third of that, 100-ish acres, and six-plus million people go to Oktoberfest. No wonder they canceled it this year. Every year? year? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. There's no way social distancing was going to happen there. Amazing. Okay, get this. Okay, we're we're drinking here, aren't we? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we are. Makes me want to use a toilet, perhaps. At the Minnesota State Fair, there are 954 toilets. Okay. Of course, give or take. Yeah. At Oktoberfest, there are 1,800 toilets. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's insane. That's fantastic. And, like, I've heard that, like, people go hide in them because just to get away because it's so loud. <laughs> they go hide in them because everybody's, like, you to go, like, use their phones and people are, like, barfing all over. Like, I, oh, my man. friend who went there, and I'll quote, I'm... Hopefully, she'll get back to me. I was like, can you tell me a few things about Oktoberfest? Uh, and this was like when I had first met her and I found out she went. I was like, what would you think? She was like, I have never seen so many people barf. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I know. Um, but she was like dressed, her and her husband were dressed in the traditional like lederhosen, you know, those Cute. like. Cute. Oh, yeah. The tights. Incredible. Yeah. Well, and, and like, the shorts and, and the, the shorts, yeah, the leather the shorts, suspenders, and the yeah. And then women wear the dirndl, I think is how it's pronounced, but okay. it's like the traditional female Southern German and kind of Alps area dress, which you look at it online. It's super cool, and they they still do like costume parades. It's like some of the biggest parades in the world happen at Oktoberfest. Like I, as much as I'm afraid of barf and actually have been diagnosed with a metaphobia, I kind of want to go. Like, yeah. I kind of want to go just to, like, yeah. see what that's like. You Scores know? and pours next year, 2021 <laughs> Oktoberfest. <laughs> Meet us there. <laughs> you just hear, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which makes me say, let's crack open this uh, next one. Yeah, this is Oliphant. Yeah, so they come in cans. The, the previous two that we tasted are in bottles. This Oliphant, they're out of Somerset, Wisconsin. So right over the river from us here, oops, here in Minneapolis. And this is their Fest beer. They just recently canned. Wow, that's dark. Look at that compared to the Einger. That is very dark. It's yes. like it's darker than the Staghorn. Yeah, it's like copper bronze almost. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of one we're going to try here down the road. The Oktober. Yeah. But. Oh, weird. So it's soft. It's nice and soft. Oh. Like I feel like I could drink 100 of these. It's 5.5% alcohol. Super light. Can yeah, it's a little watery for me. So uh, technically, 
all the beers we've tasted so far are lagers. Sometimes people will buy an Oktoberfest and it's kind of hoppy. And you're right, the one we're going to taste in a in a beer, a couple beers, is an ale. And so it has more esters. It has a little bit more all over richness and things that I won't go into the difference between an ale and a lager here, but sometimes lagers are cleaner. Sometimes they can feel lighter, not always, but in this case, give the Einger a little sip again and then, oh, just, I mean, perfect. I mean, it tastes perfect. European, which I love about it. The Oliphant, I like the initial flavor, and then the finish just seems really flat and watery to me. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. I, I think that the Oliphant, would you agree with me, that the Oliphant is a little bit closer to the Einger, though, yes. than the New Glarus, even though it's a little bit yes. lackluster. Yes. I think that's because maybe we're coming off of Staghorn. Okay. It's like... And again, I could pound a six-pack of the Oliphant and not feel bad. See that the staghorn to me tastes like it's been ho- like heavily more heavily hopped. Mm. You know? Yeah. And so it definitely gives this impression of more flavor so yeah. that when we go to the oliphant, mm-hmm. it seems a little bit kind of light mm-hmm. in that department and I think that's something that having judged a lot of beers that's something you have to kind of you can't judge one from the other. You have to judge it on its own. Sure. And that's a really hard, I think, a really hard thing to do, but something I love doing. Well, that's what you're paid to do. Yeah. It's, it's true. <laughs> it's true. So out of the three so far, which is your favorite? Probably the eye anger. Okay. I love, I just, I love European beers that are good. Yeah, I mean, mm. there's a lot of European beers that suck. So. Yes, t- totally. I mean, just like anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, the eye anger, I like it. I like it a lot. Love it. All right. Yeah. I'm I'm the same way. I guess if I were to I would honestly, I really am surprised at this Vespier, the Oliphant. I'm surprised at how kind of neck neck and neck it's trying to Yeah, there are some things yep. it lacks. But I mean, listen, we're not we don't have the same water. We're using probably different yeah. hops. So yeah, it's awesome beer. Yeah, it's very uh, good. Okay, so we are we going to go next to the <laughs> the ghostly something or other. Yeah, let's go ahead and listen to the second movement of Roth's 10th symphony. It's called Ghostly Round Dance, and uh, it's a scherzo, which means it's in a fast three. And it starts off with, well, really all the way through this movement, you hear loads of timpani, which is super fun. So we'll hear some of that in just a moment. I wanted to talk a little bit more about Roth as a composer. Uh, He got his start initially by a friend who encouraged him to send some of his piano music that he had written to Felix Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn was an influential composer, Germany living in Leipzig, and Mendelssohn championed the music of new composers and very old ones too. Mendelssohn uh, was very into just getting the world to know new music, whether that was today or yesterday's music. Raff being one of those composers that Mendelssohn ended up helping him get some works published, that gave Raff kind of a, I think, a little bit of a false impression that he could become a really successful composer early on. And so he had some really rough times early on for, for a while before he finally found his own footing after he got married and such. Um, but that, that uh, relationship he had with Mendelssohn lasted until Mendelssohn died. Roff was supposed to study composition with Mendelssohn the year that Mendelssohn died, which was 1847. Uh, a couple years before that, though, Roff 
met Franz Liszt, and this Franz Liszt was Raff's like idol. Like Raff loved Liszt and wanted to study with him, and they ended up getting in this friendship. And Liszt helped Raff get some jobs over the years. Eventually, they end up in Weimar, where Liszt is the Kapellmaster, and Raff is working for Liszt. Raff still isn't making where very is much Weimar? money. Germany. Okay. And uh, Roth ends up in a debtor's prison. It's just like kind of a little bit of a mess. But then eventually Roth does kind of pull himself up by his bootstraps, for lack of a better way, to just nutshell it for you, and start having a really successful composing career. All through the time that he was working for Liszt or shilling pianos or selling sheet music or whatever the jobs he was doing, he was writing, 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 writing. And so you asked me about the opus number of his Symphony Number no. 10, and even though, yes, that was late in his life, he wrote a lot of music, a few hundred works of music, which is pretty substantial. Wow. And again, by the time he died, he was enormously popular. He was popular here in America. He was popular in Europe. And then for whatever reason, that all kind of fell away. So that's just a little bit more about Roth. I can t- say more, especially about how he met List, which is a pretty fun story. But let's go ahead and listen to this ghostly round dance, which is the second movement of Roth's 10th symphony. It starts with timpani, and then the bass and the cello come in. Then we get to hear some bassoon, which is great. So here we go. Is cello the plural of cello? Do you not say cellos? Well, I do usually anglicize it, or yeah, but it's celli. Okay. Because it's Italian, right? Okay. But yes. Cello. I mean, it sounds Italian. Yeah. Here come the bassoons. It's so great. Yes. My eyes do the thing with the bassoon that Emily's does when she hears Bach or is talking about Bach or Beethoven. <laughs> like, they get either big or they get all scrunchy, and mine get all like. <laughs> I get real excited over here. It's the musical thing that brings me joy among the many. I mentioned this is a scherzo in a fast three, so we're at one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So. As opposed to a conductor up there beating three beats that fast, one, two, three, one, two, three, they're usually in one, two, one, two, one, two, okay. one. Yeah, just a fun little... It's very romp. melodic for being scherzo. Like, it's kind of, it seems like very... It seems like very buttery Oktoberfesty, yeah. not too hoppy. Well, and for a that's, that's the thing that Roff really did so so well for being just this in this really this sweet spot, in my opinion, for classical music in terms of melody. You know, there's he wrote just really beautiful melodies and and just had some. It's not like, I mean, I, I was gonna say it's not gonna change your life. Maybe it will, but um, it's he was a brilliant orchestrator, which means he was really good at choosing just the right instruments for just the right melody. I'm, I mean, maybe if I were kayaking and I were looking at um, <laughs> the the like trees in the distance, I mean, this might change my life. Yeah. If I were listening to this at the same time. Yeah, and that's why I retracted around. that. Yeah, yeah. totally could. Why, it's, does, why does he call it ghostly round dance? Well, for some reason, m- 
Many of Roth's seasons, symphonies had these, for some reason, kind of like mischievous, nefarious, maybe wicked. There's like a witch's Sabbath in one of the seasons mm, movements. Cool. There's an elven dance. So for some reason, he kind of had this mystical bent for some of his inner movements in these in these uh, seasons symphonies. And it was just, and I mean, to be clear, it just is fate that Roth happens to be Swiss-German. Yeah. You know, we didn't choose him because we were talking about Oktoberfest. No. We chose this music because it's emblematic of autumn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I literally didn't even realize the, the sort of German connection until today. I was like, oh, well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I really just wanted to talk about Roth because we've never talked about him, and, and he really did write some beautiful music. There's great chamber music in there. Um, some beautiful solo piano music, some standalone orchestral works that aren't symphonies, but are just one movement, maybe a tone poem-y kind of thing. He, mm. he, was, he was great. Yeah, I love talking about someone that we don't talk about normally or, you know, yeah. someone new to talk about. Um, yeah. Should I go get more beer? Let's go get more beer. I have to leave because our booth is small, so I have... Well, we don't have a refrigerator in the booth, mostly. <laughs> Next, we're going to compare the Hofbrau. Hofbrau. Which I think Hofbrau is one of their like eight, I can't remember, seven to maybe nine breweries that are normally part of Oktoberfest, and they're the ones you would know. Lowenbrau, Hockershore, Pauliner, all the goodies, you know, okay. that I personally like. Einger? Really, Einger is not. Einger isn't big enough. Gotcha. I mean, and they, so they don't play okay. that game. Okay. But in one of them, it seats like eight thousand people or something like there's a Good beer Lord. hall that just yeah. you know feeds thousands as it were amazing okay. so i wanted to pour the anger next to a delicious oktoberfest that is made in the classic way but check out how light it is it's very light it's so, also very clear hyper filtered to scores and pours scores and pours now taste the anger yeah i would never i'm just gonna say if you poured me the Hofbrau, I would never say this tastes like an Oktoberfest ever. I would totally say that about the Eyinger. It doesn't it taste just like a light lager to me? Yeah, to me it tastes like a lager with a little bit more guts, almost like a Hellas lager, something that's unfiltered or a Zwickel yeah. beer or something like that. This is probably one of the lighter ones. I chose one of the lightest ones I knew because... Um, there's also, you know, Hockershore has, I think, if I remember right, Hockershore has a little bit more color on it. So it's a little bit close, but it's still, I mean, if you look at the Einger compared to the other beers we've tasted, the other ones are darker. Yeah. You know? I mean, this one's the lightest of them all, the Hofbrau. And it's also got a little more fit effervescence Fizz, to me. Yep. yep. Yeah. And so you'll look at uh, the back on this. It says, I wanted to check the alcohol, but I can't find it. Um, maybe it's in too small a print. I won't. Oh, yeah. Alcohol, 6.3%. The Hofbrau? Yeah. Wow. Like, it doesn't taste like that. No. That'd get me to barf on the side of the street in Munich for sure. After two <laughs> liters? I know. So get this, because this is just a great fact. Yeah, I told you there are, you know, about six plus million people. I think the record was mm -hmm. seven something. Six to eight million liters are served per annum. 
So imagine, you know, there are old people that go. It's it's a very like families go, old people go. You know, a lot of people don't order a whole liter of beer. Mm-hmm. Kids aren't drinking. Well, actually, I have seen in Germany. Kids I mean, <laughs> in Germany, but I mean. Think of the people that are drinking five, six, seven, eight liters of beer, like six to eight million liters. That's like that's a lot. A few Olympic swimming pools. <laughs> it is really look it up. It is. I I, yeah, I've seen it in a couple different sources of which, like, well, I can't remember. One was like Oktoberfest statistics, something or other, and I think that that's where Wiki got that info too because I saw it there too. Just uh, anyway. you know what I have to say about that is just go human race. Yes, well done, <laughs> well done. Drink a swimming pool full of beer. A few, <laughs> yeah, in two weeks. <laughs> well done, human race. I love it. <laughs> oh my god, I love that so much. It's so good. A couple more things about Oktoberfest to to mention. It says on the front of the label of the Hofbrau Oktoberfest beer. Munich specialty, brewed according to the German purity law, which the German purity law is called the Reinheitsgebot. You needed to know that and spell it right for your sommelier exam. If you Mm. spelled it wrong in the essays, out. When they were putting together Oktoberfests and saying like, okay, well, let's include beer now. Let's use this type of beer. They, one thing that was acknowledged very early was that the beers that are going to be included in Oktoberfest, they have to be from Bavaria, of course, mm-hmm. and they have to be brewed according to the Reinheitsgebot, which was um, instilled right, right around 15, 15, 15, 16, 17, 15, 16. I'm going to settle on 16. Anyway, and that purity law states that the, nothing can be in this beer except for water, hops. I don't think it specifies barley. It's like malts and... Yeast. Four things. Nothing else. And you you may be listening and thinking, wow, there can be more things added to beer besides, <laughs> you know, I mean, let's let's and let's negate all the rainbow sherbet bullshit. <laughs> There's so many extracts and things that can be added to your beer that if there was a an ingredients list, it's very much like the difference between conventional and natural wine. Even with craft beer, if there was an ingredients label. Sometimes you wouldn't buy it, even though it's crafty and it's this and that. Because there's a, there's a lot of, lot of stuff in Your there. Your beer's over there doing finger painting and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I just had this. Paper mache. <laughs> I, just, I have a, like this little image in my head of this bottle with like little like yeah. pipe cleaner arms and legs just like doing a little thing and doing a little like, uh, if, if anybody's seen the little chef, the tiny chef that's like, it tastes like this, it's a little tiny chef, it is a cup of tea. I just like have this idea of the tiny beer bottle that's like, good night corner doing crafts and talking like this. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, crafty well, beer. I mean, let's... Let's drink more beer now that we're talking like that on Scores and Pours. As a huge fan of Oktoberfest beer, one thing, if you get into anything like that, that shit sells out. The the good stuff sells out so fast. Like, we're going to try one of my favorites of the season in a moment, and it's out. they're out of it already at my personal personal liquor store. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know what I mean? Like... It's <laughs> surly. What were you going to say, though? Nothing. Let's surly. We're going to taste surly alongside the Einger and see what we think. Surly is a Twin Cities beer. 
Yeah, Shirley almost single-handedly along with Summit, but Shirley did a really great job of, you know, making not only craft beer like Summit did, but they became extremely famous in like the latter part of last decade, 2007, 8, 9, for their Furious, their IPA. Everybody wanted, wanted it. They weren't outside of Minnesota for years, and then they finally got regional and then national representation and shit went viral and like everybody still can't get enough like furious i still have guests that come into the wine shop i work at henry and son and they're like do you have any furious (laughs) and they say it like it's running out as we speak i'm like i do have furious there's enough of it made we're not gonna run about the run out of that that's for sure they make a six percent alcohol oktoberfest what i like about them is they do a really fun little twist because they use some rye malt um, as well as barley. Okay. And um, it adds like this nice, it used to be a little bit too hoppy for my liking and they've reined in and I think they've hit a sweet spot. So let's, let's surly eyeing or surly, but look at the color. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit. It's, almost the same it's though. almost the same Probably as Probably the Einer, closest, yeah. the closest. Agreed. Yeah. Surly. It's just called Oktoberfest. I mean, I got myself into trouble with this the other night. That's how good it is. <laughs> I love that. Okay. See, uh-huh. Anger just has a little more flavor. Mm-hmm. It does. But it's malt, a little bit more malt. A little bit you know? more malt. And so it makes it taste a little rounder to me. The Anger is a little rounder than the Surly. Mm-hmm. And I also, it, the Anger's getting close to room temperature also. Good point. But the effervescence on the Surly is noticeably more. I would never honestly have noticed this probably because I've had this beer this season and have really enjoyed it. I think they're hitting their stride. The hops are just, I mean, they're really quite perfect. Like Mm -hmm. they are just refreshing enough without being too intrusive. They use uh, sterling hops is what they're called. And then they use um, some really interesting malts. One is called Vienna. I said they use some rye. And then they use, uh, I'd never heard of it before today, Melon Odin, Melon Odin, Hmm. a type of, of malt. Okay. And... I think they really have have hit a nice spot. The the qualm I have, or the the little mini quip, is like I was going to say that finish, yeah, is a little bit Coors Lighty <laughs> or a little Budweisery. Okay, you know, not a bad thing. I, well, but can I, be. But I that finish is something that when I'm judging beers, I yeah. I'll dock people points for that because mm. I think it tastes like macro beer, and there's yeah nothing about this that is. Well, they make enough for the country, but there's not, you know. Yeah, they, no, they, I know what you mean. Though. So, yeah, that's the only. That's the only thing. Should we listen before we crack open this carbon four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah. Let's let's, let's move Roth. on to the third movement of the Joachim Roth Symphony Number no. Ten. If this we is, don't, I'm going to be like, let's listen to some This is an absolutely beautiful movement. This is a beautiful, beautiful. This should be a beautiful writing. Beautiful. Uh, it's called Elegy. And this is, yes, the slow movement. It's in what we would call common time. So there's the conductor would be up there beating four beats. Uh, and it's um, uh, in a form called a rondo, which we've talked about before. And we will talk about again. Just know but that it's fun. I was going to say, talk about it now. Give us a little quickie. So a rondo, you have, if you have, you know, you your first set of melodic material, let's call that A as in the letter A. Then you move on to your next set of melodic material, let's call that B. Then we go back to A. And then we do some new melodic material. So we go to C, let's call that the letter C. Then we go back to A. 
basically like A, B, A, C, A, D, A, you know, on and on, however long you want to go. Usually it's A, B, A, C, A, but sometimes there's D. It just depends on the length of the piece. Okay, and, that's cool. Though. I think yeah, but you keep it. coming back to the beginning uh, material is basically it. Yeah. Um, there's, again, beautiful woodwind writing in here. There's a beautiful bassoon solo followed by a lovely oboe solo. Of course, there's lots of really great string writing as well, but just very gorgeous moments melodically. Even the horns get in on the action, which they're going to get in on the action in the last movement too, but there's uh, really great writing. So let's listen to a little bit of this, and we might bounce around a little in this slow movement because it's kind of long. Sounds great. Joachim Roth, third movement of his 10th symphony. the day after Oktoberfest. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I'll count it for you as well. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. So slow. So much beautiful wind writing. Oh. And that's kind of a hallmark of, of Joachim Roth. Okay. He was very tender woodwind writing. Kind of more so than than brass, really. You know, it's just self-taught. Just, yeah. You know. Yep. I mean, and to be fair, he spent a lot of time with the Liszt crowd. Franz Liszt, he was good friends with Hans von Bülow. Hans von Bülow was a German conductor, also a composer. Um but Hans von Bülow actually married Liszt's daughter, who then she left Hans von Bülow for Wagner. Anyway, Joachim Roth was friends with a lot of that circle. Like sands through the hourglass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, and the thing is, too, von Bülow, the conductor who was married to Liszt's daughter, Cosima, he wouldn't even give her a divorce until after she had already had three children with Wagner. So he Whoa. he was just adamantly opposed to divorcing her, but then finally she cranks out three kids from Wagner, that and there's like not... a seventy year age difference between them, or so it was oh ridiculous how much older Wagner was than Cosima, and One finally cool th- he's like, yeah, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead. I, the writing's on the wall. <laughs> One cool thing I wanted to mention about Roth that I really thought was special, especially I know that we're going to get back to the third movement, um, but yep. uh, he was a teacher at the Hoke Conservatory. He was like writing classes that were specifically to highlight for females to attend and to highlight female composers. And he like hired Clara Schumann, who we've talked about on this episode a few times, a very great composer that didn't get uh, probably as much time in the limelight as she deserved during her life. Yeah. But, you know, had her teaching classes. Mm -hmm. um, And that's really a cool thing, I think, to to just note about this guy is that he was... Ahead of his time in that way. He was, and that conservatory had been newly formed, and they hired him on, and and he ended up 
than hiring on a lot of other people, as you're saying, and doing classes for female composers, which is absolutely outstanding. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, let's skip ahead to the middle part of this movement where we get that really great bassoon solo and the oboe thing going on. Yes, please. As I sip on my Shirley Oktoberfest. Like lots of instruments can and different people's approach to them, but man, yeah. I love the bassoon and its ability to convey emotion, especially yes. tearful emotion, you know? Yes. Whether it's joy or sadness. Yeah. Very compelling. You hear writing like this and you're like, well, no wonder people loved him because it's just beautifully melodic and it just kind of tugs at your heart and passionate and yeah, it's great. Beautiful little elegy for that third movement of Roth's Symphony Number no. 10, and we'll listen to the fourth movement in a bit. But let's uh, drink one of the beers. I did not like, if you're going to call it an Oktoberfest, but uh, you know obviously so much more about that, so help me understand. Well, I, it's it's an homage. It's not an even Oktoberfest-style beer. I think it's more of an... They do call it Oaktober. Oaktober. Because October, yeah. yeah, no because, fest at the end. October, and they know that that will sell because everybody wants Oktoberfest. That's now. why I bought it. And to be fair, Oktoberfest sells like hotcakes even in August. That's when they start coming out, and that's kind of I think I don't know insane. You don't. Do we really want that, especially here in Minneapolis when it's eighty degrees and humid, or ninety mm-hmm. and humid? But I mean, whatever. I just don't want them to all be sold out or too old. Right now, that's I, the thing that annoys me is that we're out of Surly Oktoberfest and it's not even the end of September yeah. when we're recording. You know. Yeah. So this is Carbon Four, which I don't think I've mentioned on the show before, but has the best, literally the best label of any label for any product. For their IPA called Fantasy Factory. I mean, we could be talking about electronics. We could be talking about floors. We could be talking about high Vera Wang fashion. It doesn't matter. It is the best label of all time. And this is not. The October is not. But Carbon 4 is great. They're out of Madison. So it says October. And then on the bottom it says Oktoberfest style ale. And what I think that means is, okay... We're going to have it a little bit higher alcohol, in this case 6.5%. So now we're getting a little above what is you know, thought to be. It's going to be a little darker than a typical Oktoberfest. Yep. Look at that color compared to your anger. Th- this is an ale. So now we're not Oktoberfest lagering. Mm-hmm. Now we're an ale. So we are using different yeast strains. We're fermenting at higher temperatures so that it can get more esters out of the beer, more aromas. And they've actually... If a beer is aged in wood, it'll say in oak, in this vessel, that vessel. If it's on oak, you know that they've used oak staves or oak chips of some sort because that's less expensive. Gotcha. um, They can hyper, you know, they don't have to fill a whole barrel. They can just weigh it out and use what they want. So here they've used a little bit of French and American oak 
staves or chips. Yeah. I imagine staves because chips get really gnarly really fast because they're such small pieces a lot of times. And I don't know. I really like the beer, but it doesn't taste – it tastes autumnal. It doesn't taste like Oktoberfest. So the fact that they say October, Oktoberfest style ale, those are all kinds of things that mislead me. Yeah. Because then when you taste it, you were like, I don't like this. I was shocked because I like – the other Carbon 4 beers that I've tried, I've liked a lot. A lot. And so I was just like, holy shit, they make an Oktoberfest? And I didn't read the fine print. I didn't, you know, next year I will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's so malty. It's, so malty. I mean, it's malty. It does have that little bit of vanilla. It's not oaky, but it's got that little bit of vanilla. And I think it's a delicious little beer. It is. Do I want, I want two bottles, I don't, or two pints. I don't want to... Six pack. Yeah, I don't fridge. want a six pack, and don't call it Oktoberfest. Yeah, <laughs> which call they it don't call, call it am, call it amber. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it says Oktoberfest style, style. ale. Yeah, it's not Oktoberfest style anything, and then don't have ale after Oktoberfest style. Like right, because that should be lager. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Love you guys, but I well, felt a little misled. I would say love you guys, but still the fact that they have their uh, ninja. Bandana wearing cat on Gun top of a cat on top of a unicorn that yeah. is, has flames that my cousin introduced me to uh, yeah. years ago. I mean, they can they can strike a miss with you. This is fine, but the, that's just always gonna. Okay, guys, send me a hoodie, please, or a long sleeve shirt because I've been wanting them for a while and I haven't gotten down to Madison. So I would like when I wear an extra small or a small thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to hear the fourth movement of the Roth? Absolutely, please. All right. As long as you can pronounce Ranheitsgebot. Ranheitsgebot. Word. Yeah. All right. Final movement. One of the things that you hear often in music referring to the fall times, the hunt. This is the time when we go out fox hunting or we go out whatever hunting. I don't know what else we hunt in the fall. Beer. Beer. <laughs> Trust me, I, I hunt. <laughs> I hunt for beer. Um, so this is uh, the hunt is the name of the movement. And as is common with a hunt type song, it's in a meter called 6-8, which kind of is a horsey type, galloping type Ooh. meter. All right. Will you sing it to us? Yeah. The meter? Okay. Of course. So let's listen to a little bit of the hunt from Roth's 10th Symphony. <laughs> Oh, the other thing, too, before we hear it is, you know, we'll hear this in 6-8, which is, you know, horsey kind of thing. We also hear a lot of horns because, of course, they used to carry hunting horns. And so horns evoke this image of a hunt about to happen. So that's what he's doing with that. Can you promise me that sometime if we go to a brewery together that we can, like, go on a hunt for beer and have a horn of some sort that we can play? Yes. We can, like, replicate it? Absolutely. And that, that will be social media for sure. Yes. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, Ooh, five, six. It's really like. Yep. Can you just brump, 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 right? The horses? Brump, brump. Yes. <laughs> As long as my chalice is full. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's just joyful celebration of what people do in the autumn time. Do you so. know that a lot of times carriages during this time in certain countries in northern 
northerly Europe, that they would uh, have like spots built into their carriages for their beer. Amazing. Northern Europe. That's what I meant to say. So there's some Joachim oh, yeah, Ruff. Just those, and those deep strings. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people have kind of tried to bring him back, and even then it's, you know, if you go on to your music streaming location of choice and type in Beethoven Symphony 5, you'll get an overwhelming amount of uh, recordings. recordings to okay. choose from. It can be just super daunting. But if you type in Ruff Symphony 10... You'll get like two, four choices. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you know it's it's a little easier to kind of yeah. listen and see. Oh, I like this one a little bit better than this one. That's what I did, and I was like, yeah, I like this one a little better. And it wasn't even the performance that was better. It was just a little clearer recording, and so it's not as intimidating as trying to wade through yeah Mozart Symphony Forty One or something like that. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, listen to some Roth. I think you'll. Like it. He was an interesting man and ended up marrying an actress. And uh, she really kind of helped him hunker down and focus. And cool. Really wonderful story. And also, if I may, before we wrap up with beer, I neglected to say how he met List because this is a super fun little story. And I'll just quickly say it. Roth heard that List was playing a concert near him and he was really broke at the time. He didn't have enough money to take any kind of carriage to the uh, recording, to where the recording, where the performance was. And so he walked and it was pouring rain. And he walked in the rain for, I can't remember how many hours, gets to the concert hall, finds out it's sold out. And he's like beside himself, List's promoter or List's manager, someone worked who worked for List, noticed Roth, was like, oh man, you look bummed out. Because you're drenched and whatever. And so the guy goes to List and says, hey, there's this fella who literally walked here. We're out of tickets. List was like, let him in and let him sit on stage with me. And so Roth talks about how he was like literally dripping water on the stage, just sitting in a puddle of water. And then List at the end of that was like, hey, do you want to just come on tour with me? And that's how their relationship began. It was a Bit of a complicated situation, but what a beautiful story, really. Hashtag passion. Yeah, exactly. So there you go. Love that. Guac- Thanks Joachim for sharing that. that was, that's, a cr- that's awesome and crazy, and I love that shit. Yeah, man. Because I feel like that's just going to the umpteenth degree to satisfy a need yep. with will that you know, a lot of people don't have. Yep. One thing I want to point out, because we talked about it before when we tasted the Oliphant, Fest beer next to other beers, and it kind of didn't measure up. But then when you kind of yeah. do it on its own merit, whatever. Taste the October from Carbon Four, and let that satiate and saturate your palate. Okay. Now you'd think going back to Iinger would taste like nothing. A now we're at we each have about an ounce in our glass, so nothing. Yeah. It's been sitting here dying in the window, as we in the restaurant industry like to say. Carbonation's almost gone away, and yet taste this and tell me it maintains. Mm-hmm. The Iinger tastes also just more outdoorsy and kind of 
bar- barn, bready, barney, like old country days. Okay, well, you, I love that. The, the, there's definitely no Britannomyces in here. No. You said yeah. bready, and I heard bretty, like Britannomyces. I said bread e. Okay, so yes, I think you're right there. It does taste more bready. Mm-hmm. But I, it, clarify the outdoorsy, because I don't know what that means. I don't know if I know what it means either. <laughs> All right, that's fine. <laughs> What's interesting is the Fest beer, kind of from Oliphant, we had to like clarify that we can't compare. Yep. We're comparing, but we can't, it can't lose points because we're, because other right. things overshadow it and then make it seem. Whereas this, that would, I thought that was going to happen with the Iyengar. I thought, oh, we're going to taste this October that's like kind of deliciously daunting in the world of this style. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go back to Iyengar and it's going to be like, oh, sad. And it's yet, not. it's not at all. Not at all. Like it holds its own. Mm-hmm. It's got, this beautiful, but not, there's, it's all humility. I mean, there's like a yeah. lot of malts, but it's all toned down. Yeah. All really pretty. Yeah. That is the one thing that, I mean, I, I don't want to say ruins the carbon four for me, but the one thing that makes it not a player for me in the whole equation is how malty it is. It's mm. too much for, for me. Yeah. So my friend got back to me and I'm going to quote her, Erica Rocky who is the wife of the thrifty traveler on Instagram, which is amazing for those of you who like to travel, travel well and travel on, you know, on the cheap, on the flight department and on the hotel department. Um, but I want to, they've been to Oktoberfest twice, so they know it. Uh, they know it well, right? And, you know, she, they've both worn the garb. She's the type, if she's going to do anything, she's going to do it well, much like myself. And she says, it's the happiest place on earth. Actually, the happiest place on earth. It's a huge celebration of Bavarian culture and history. Over 80% of attendees are German and everyone dresses up. Each tent is sponsored by a German brewery and has its own design and feel. Oompa-pa, bands play local drinking songs and some international songs that everyone sings along to while drinking liters of beer and eating roasted chicken and sausages. The atmosphere is one of happy celebration. There's even a sparkling wine gazebo if you need a break from beer. I've been twice, smiley face with hearts on the eyes. It's the best. Thanks, Erica Rocky. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. In heaven there is no beer, that's why we drink it here, and when we're gone from here, our friends will be drinking all the beer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode, including a playlist and a beer list. And you can support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. On that same page, you can find a link to our new merchandise that includes hoodies and tees, which are we're wearing them right now. It's They're amazing. amazing. Yeah. Uh, we're on Instagram at scores and pours, and that's where we would recommend you direct message us with any questions you have about any beers you hear about on the show, wines, classical music, what have you. And consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Mr. Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.